Welcome to Succession Stories, Insights for Next Generation Entrepreneurs. I'm Lori Barkman. I've spent my career bringing an entrepreneurial approach to mature companies struggling with change. As an outside executive of a third-generation, 120-year-old company, I was part of a long-term succession plan. Now I work with entrepreneurs, privately held companies, and family businesses to develop innovations that create enterprise value and transition plans to achieve their long-term goals. On this podcast, listen in while I talk with entrepreneurs who are driving innovation and culture change. I speak with owners who successfully transition their company and others who experience disappointment along the way. Guests also include experts in multi-generational businesses and entrepreneurship. If you are a next-generation entrepreneur looking for inspiration to grow and thrive, or an owner who can't figure out the best way to transition their closely held company, this podcast is for you. On today's episode, I'm thrilled to be joined by Jim Rooney. Jim is an entrepreneur and author of the book, A Different Way to Win, Dan Rooney's story from the Super Bowl to the Rooney Rule. Jim wrote the book about his father and the family business, the Pittsburgh Steelers, a $2.5 billion enterprise with millions of loyal fans around the world. We talked about Dan Rooney's legacy, from his successful career in sports, to the leadership ethos of the Steeler enterprise, to the creation of the NFL policy regarding league teams to interview ethnic minority candidates for head coaching and senior football operations jobs. Jim shared some powerful stories about how Dan Rooney inspired leadership and influenced a culture that still endures today. Some of Dan Rooney's business principles that we discussed were how to run a successful business that has meaning beyond the bottom line and how to take the long view even if others focus on short-term gains. And sometimes it has to get worse before it gets better. Even if you're not a football or a Steelers fan, I think you'll enjoy hearing about Dan Rooney's legacy of leadership. Jim, welcome to Succession Stories. I'm really excited you're here. I'm super excited to talk with you today. I live in Pittsburgh, and I certainly know the Rooney name and its affiliation with football and the family enterprise, the Pittsburgh Steelers. The name may not be familiar to people if they don't watch football, but I imagine that with all the fans all over the world, it is a team that people know. There's Steeler bars literally everywhere, and even in cities you least expect. The team is the seventh oldest in the NFL, and there's a strong, strong legacy for the Pittsburgh Steelers. As a way to get started, I thought we could talk about, did you know when you were growing up how important the Steelers were to their fans? And I was curious, at what point did you really start to appreciate the notoriety of the team as a beloved brand? Well, first, thank you for having me. It's great to be with you, Lori. And I think what you're doing is very interesting and cool. And so I'm glad you've asked me to be a part of it. So I guess I would say that we have been involved really in the sports industry for more than 100 years, if you, if you count my grandfather's contribution, and certainly his contribution to the Steelers as its founder is significant. So this is an industry that, that we've known. I would say that we've made a contribution to building it and developing it into what it has become in many ways, and sometimes trying to caution against some of the massive growth, because I think that, that sometimes the growth of the industry does have an impact on the sport. And I think that although we've made it more available to folks, I think sometimes the quality of the sport does suffer when the business gets too far out in front of the sport. So that's something that that I think the members of my family that have been involved in this industry have tried to pay attention to. And I think that relates to your question as we see fans not just as customers, certainly they are, and we, we understand the business side, but I like to think we see them as neighbors and they're people that have choices with what type of entertainment 
they engage in, where they put their investments, how they spend their lives. And I think we've tried to build both a brand and an approach that has met and respected what is important to people who, who choose to be Steeler fans. So I hope that we've represented them well and, and done it in a way that's consistent with what they see as important in their lives. I guess more specifically, you said, when did I recognize that? You know, I always say, I don't know if I was four or five years old, but I remember being in this hotel lobby at a very young age and someone asking me if I had tickets and that they would buy them from me. And I didn't know what tickets were, but I was interested in the idea that someone was going to buy these things from me. So my mother grabbed my arm and pulled me away. But I, from that day forward, I knew that there was something a little different there. You knew at that point that you had some special access that maybe some others wanted to get. And I like your comment about being a neighbor. It's not just the team and the audience, but how can you be neighbors? That's an interesting point for a brand is expanding that horizon. So thanks, Jim, for sharing that background. I wanted to ask, why did you decide to write the book about your father, Dan Rooney? And what was the toughest part about writing this book? <laughs> well, you know, a lot of people have come up to me over the last year who are, are pretty successful and say, oh, I thought about writing a book. And, and I usually say, go ahead and write it. But I say it is not an easy process. So writing a book is a challenge, I think, in any circumstance, even great writers talk about those challenges. And I don't put myself in that category, but I think we put a good project together. And the, and the reason is, you know, there's a lot of books on leadership out there. And I think that, you know, I've read many of them. I have been motivated by many of the books and the concepts behind the books, things ranging from self-help to the alpha male model and everything in between. And I think that leadership is something that's important. I think my father's approach to leadership was one that really respected both the hardcore standards that are important to success, but also what unfortunately are called the softer sides. I, I would call them the things that build stability and continuity, those things that are more sublime, more subtle. I think they're every bit as important to leadership. And I think, they're, I think those that follow look for those clues maybe in a more significant way and invest in the leaders more when they see clues of people who are willing to look at the humanity involved. So I put this story together because I think it's a story of someone who was, you know, successful in a, in a very public way in an industry that is, that is very recognizable. And some of his accomplishments are, are very well known. And I think telling that story in reference to where we all want leaders to be or, or how we want leaders to act and, and their approach it felt like it was appropriate. And I think I got a lot of good stories out. I, I talked to a lot of people that just gave me great content. And I think folks will, will enjoy engaging in those. That was probably really interesting experience to journey through the past too, and learn all these different things about your family that you didn't know. Yeah, it was. I often comment, I think the biggest context that was given to me that was different than I would expect was Commissioner Paul Tagliabue, Paul Tagliabue was the NFL's commissioner prior to Roger Goodell, who's the current commissioner, said to me, you know, your father was the best risk taker I've ever known. And he said, look, there are other people that take risks, but no one that I've ever seen was willing to really get into how he defined risk. And that was get into the challenging situation, the mess, the difficulty, the ambiguity, not know what the outcome was going to be, not be worried about his reputation. Uh, per se, or, or the perception, but really to get in there and work on trying to create a, a solution or a contribution to a challenge, whether it be the Rooney rule, whether it be labor, you know, his work in Ireland, 
all of those things, there's always going to be ongoing challenges around the circumstances or the conditions that he dealt with. And certainly none of them, his contribution didn't ultimately create the silver bullet that saved things, but he was always willing to go in there and make a substantial contribution to get involved in a way that was significant and critical and deal with it over the long run in a a way that, that I think a lot of other people don't. And so that reference point or context of risk my father is pretty much an old white dude, especially if you, you saw him in the last 30 years of his life, but really was this risk taker and really was a change agent and was, was committed to, to trying to make meaningful change. And you referenced your grandfather a few minutes ago, and that's probably a good place to sort of rewind and talk about him a little bit. He was grooming your father because your father was the oldest son, correct? And so... He started grooming your father to run the team. And I don't know if your dad had realized at the time, right? He was water boy or whatever he was doing. And eventually he took on more and more responsibility. And this story is part of the book I find so interesting. And I was wondering if you could talk about that, what the dynamic was for your father. And certainly once he started to take on more responsibility with the team and make some of those accomplishments you were just referring to, that was not overnight. That was over a stretch of 20, 20 or so years or longer. Like you said, Laurie, it's, it's decades. And, and I think when you look at a substantial change, a, a real transformation of a culture, like my father brought to the Steelers. We hear the word culture a lot in sports, but, but really it is a long-term word. And to get a culture to truly transform and then sustain that new way of, of approaching things takes some time. And, and that's what my, my father took that time and remained committed. But I do always have to say that, that the core value of the Steelers, and when we're our best, we, we, I think we always strive for it, but we achieve it, is you know, this notion that my grandfather brought, which was respect for the dignity of every person that comes in contact with the organization. And I remember, you know, I started as a, as a ball boy in the 70s and, and sitting down with my grandfather and he said, you know, I don't care if it's a uh, player who we're in a difficult contract negotiation with. I don't care if it's a member of the media that has written, you know, a negative story about us. I don't care if it is a, a fan who, who's upset about their seats or something. Can you get beyond that and respect the dignity of the person that you're dealing with? So that foundational condition, approach, whatever you want to call it, you know, really was fundamental to, to my father. I think my grandfather had to believe that my father understood that if he was going to take over. And, and I think that he, he did understand that. And I think at different points, he showed that in his leadership style. But then my father really combined business acumen. The idea, the shared revenue approach that the NFL has. So all 32 teams in the NFL share the revenue that we get from our television contracts. The idea that there's this, what they call the G4 stadium funding mechanism. So support from the league revenue to support the construction of new facilities and the upgrading of facilities. Both of those required an acumen and understanding of negotiation and understanding of of working with people and understanding of finance and accounting that my father focused on and really brought to bear in a substantial way that really wasn't the focus of my grandfather. My grandfather was a great promoter and, and, and really did a good job with that. But my father really brought that you know, more complete management business approach to, to really everything he did. And, and, and I think combining that with the fundamental belief my grandfather had around human dignity really became the platform or, or basis of my father's success. 
That's, I think, a really interesting way to talk about that generational transition was that your grandfather was the founder and the entrepreneur and he got the team launched and that was about promoting and getting it off the ground. And those are challenging early years and he, he had a lot to figure out. And then when your dad came in, college educated, had the business acumen and just a different philosophy grounded in your grandfather's philosophy, of course, about dignity. But one quote that stood out to me in the book I thought was really interesting and probably a lot of family businesses could relate to is He was managing the team with arts advice ringing in his ears. Do it your way, but don't screw it up. (laughs) I just thought that was a great quote. Yeah, I don't know if that's um, that's you know our our Irish heritage or or if everyone's everyone's heritage has that. But there there's a way we we support each other and have each other's back in our family like like no one else. You know, you can mess with we can mess with each other, but you can never mess with a family member. And I think I think all families carry that to some degree. Um, but the other side of that is, uh, you know, my grandfather, who is, is known as this, you know, this, this real gentle man, um, he had a tough side to him and, and um, he understood that my father, you know, had developed skills that he didn't have. But at the end of the day, you know, the expectation was that he, w- he would get things done. And, um, you know, I think that's what he meant there is, is look, uh, you know, I, I won't get in your business you better get it done. And, and uh, he said that, he said that to my father and that, that was clear. And I remember him saying it to me, now I was in my, my teenage years. So, so, you know, the responsibility wasn't as great, but, but that was, you know, as, as gentle and as kind as my grandfather has known. And I saw him treat so many like that with the family. He, he did that, but he also had that, that other side of the coin where, where he had, he had high expectations and wasn't afraid to, to let us know that. Yeah, for sure. Understandable. You referenced a few of the innovations that your father brought to life for the Steelers and the NFL in total. And I wanted to circle back to that because I think that's a really important part of the story. And I was wondering if you could share a little more about some of these innovations, which ones in particular stood out to you. And that's such a great question because I think because of the last 30, 40 years of our lives, you know, we think of innovation as, as solely technological. And certainly, there always need to be process improvements either ahead of or along with some of these technological improvements. And if you look at my father's career, he brought some of the most significant business process improvements to an industry that now has this massive footprint. You look at the television sharing deal, and when that came about, baseball was by far and away the biggest sport in America in the 50s and 60s. No one would have ever thought that anyone could overcome baseball as the most significant player in the sports industry. You look at the, the, the stadium model, and there's a lot of tax dollars that go into these facilities, and that, that frustrates a lot of people, and I understand that deeply and have been engaged in many, many conversations with that. My father's approach was, look, we have to demonstrate that we're willing to make some type of contribution to these facilities if you know we're going to have any type of positive relationship with the taxpayers who by the way are our neighbors and fan bases so we have to find ways to to build you know some accommodation some relationship with them so there was you know this innovation there was understanding the marketplace and understanding that they were already making a contribution a lot of people didn't like making that contribution. And how are you going to meet that? And how do you build a relationship that has reciprocity? You know, even if people don't necessarily like the fact, I think the, the notion that, that we did it, that my father built in, in this G3 and then G4 mechanism, you know, a substantial 
um, finance mechanism. People may not even completely know what it is, but, but that he took the time to sort of understand that that process had to be in place. It had to be solid. It had to be equitable amongst the owners, but, but that it was about reciprocity. It was about building a relationship that is meaningful with the fans and showing that. You look at the labor deals that he did. Certainly, he was you know, decades ahead of the rest of the NFL when it came to free agency. He understood that players, that free agency for players was, was just going to be essential, that they saw that as, as their number one priority. So he went beyond sort of the concern that we could never have free agency was going to tear the league apart to what really was behind the concern of player movement, and it was competitive balance amongst the teams. So the idea that you have competitive balance and, and, and the mechanisms that were built into the collective bargaining agreements, he started in the mid-70s with, with those notions and some of those plans. There's an agreement that I talk about in the book, the Anderson-Rooney Agreement, that was back in 97, and you didn't get you know, free agency in a significant way until uh, back in 77 was the Rooney-Anderson Agreement. You didn't get free agency until the mid-1990s, so he was sort of 20 years ahead of the time with that process. And then obviously the Rooney rule, which again, that process needs to be improved. And my father would be the first person to say it needs to be improved. But at the time, you know, he really brought forward the conversation. He brought the best practices that were available in industry back in 2003 when he created the Rooney rule. Um, you know, he was able to build a consensus. He was able to, to make a substantial improvement to hiring. And now that process is, is used in in different forms, but the Rooney rule has really become either the direct best practice in diversity hiring or the inspiration for the improvements. Obviously, as I said, those things have to be continually improved, and my father understood that, but that commitment to innovation and and process improvement, um, I think, really was the hallmark of his career. Innovation and process improvement, and you shared some really great examples of that. So if we keep talking about the Rooney Rule, one of the things that stood out to me in the book was the quote from your father and the lessons from your father about how to run a successful business that has meaning beyond the bottom line. And what better way maybe to talk about the Rooney Rule a little more deeply than using that quote as a springboard. And and some of our listeners might not be familiar with the Rooney Rule and what it means. And so I was wondering if you could share a little more background about that. And I'd love to hear what the Rooney Rule means to you. Right, right. So, so to give you some background, in 1920, the, the NFL began. You know, we just celebrated uh, our 100th season last year. The first season of the NFL was 1920. And there was, there was actually an African-American player coach. So he both played and, and coached. I think the team's name was the Akron Pros back then. And his name was Fritz Pollard. And so Fritz Pollard coached and played in the league for, I think, five or six years. And, and then um, up until 1932, uh, you, you had some very limited but African-American participation. And then, you know, unfortunately, because of the Depression, other reasons that I don't think they're good reasons, but, you know, it, it was the situation at the time. You, you basically had an informal ban on African-American players from 32 to 52, from 1932 to 1952. And then the delay and and certainly the the player contribution from a diversity standpoint, um, you know, contributed to the delay in in coaching. There is, you know, it's not a direct relationship between players and coaches, but but traditionally many folks who play football end up getting involved in the coaching. So you had this delay in, in 
African-American coaches on the assistant level. Uh, the Steelers hired the first African-American assistant coach back in the, in the mid-1950s. Tony Dungy, who became the first African-American coach to win the Super Bowl, was the first African-American defensive coordinator hired by the Steelers in, I think the year was 1981. And there were a couple other big industry partners that, that actually were pushed because of, of some legal pressure to change, but they had, they had begun to create what they call the diverse candidate slate practice within the hiring process. So the idea that you would ensure that uh, there's at least some diversity in the final X number of candidates, whether it's three or five or, or what have you, but that there's some, some diversity in that candidate pool. And so the NFL's requirement, which is the Rooney rule, is that, that there is at least one minority in the candidate pool for the head coach or the general manager, which, were the, which are the two top jobs in the football operations. So that, that's sort of where, where it came from. And my father led the committee. He was chairman of the, the NFL's diversity committee that, that was, was established because of this study that, that Janice Madden did. Um, and, and he, as I said, sort of brought together um, not only other NFL owners, but experts from all over industry who, who were wrestling with this problem. The other thing my father did, so for the next 20 years of his life, there's a gentleman named John Wooten, um, who was the second African-American player to play uh, at, the, at the University of Colorado. He was one of the early African-American pioneers in the 50s and 60s in the NFL. And then he, he went on to become one of the first African-American scouts, the, the folks that look for uh, talent. And John Wooten and my father partnered for the next 20 years to really create this championing or advocacy network where you know, they were constantly talking to teams, coaches, general managers, owners, um, at looking at diverse candidates and ensuring when jobs were coming available that there was, um, you know, that, that diverse candidates were being considered and were, were part of that. They, they create a whole host of processes within that that include video interviews, that include having lists so people could be more and more familiar. Commissioner Tagliabu actually went to the networks and, and asked them to start focusing during the games on talking about some of the African-American assistant coaches just to sort of bring a, um, a greater understanding of the availability of these folks and the contribution to others that, that, that really um, led this effort. And that was sort of where my father came from. Another side of the, the story that I think is important from my father's standpoint is, you know, we've had three coaches in the last 50 years and some, co- some teams have three coaches in one year. And, you know, he conducted a very thorough process in hiring a coach. And it was very much about, you know, understanding that someone carry the same beliefs and values as you. Do they have the competency, the ability to execute? And are they, are they able and willing in his assessment to grow and develop? So when you get to the current Steelers situation, um, Bill Cower, who, who was voted into the Hall of Fame, retired in 2008. And so we started a coaching search. And my father started with 37, moved down to 12, four, and then one. That is probably more than double the pool that most other people you know, look at when they're evaluating this, the, this type of job. But my father really understood and believed that you know, you're hiring a coach for decades and you want someone that is going to play a role, probably the most significant role in your organization for a long period of time, and that stability, and that continuity, um, that those are all going to be really important things. So you may be getting pressure from fans or the media to make a, a, you know, a decision more quickly. 
because there's this opening and there's this idea that, that these jobs are, are very competitive, which they are, but that you're going to miss a candidate. My father really felt like, well, there's, there's more than one candidate. I always want to find the one that fits us best. So let's, let's take time. Let's be more deliberative in the process. And in this case, you know, they interviewed a gentleman named Ron Rivera who achieved the Rooney Rule requirement, but we ultimately hired Mike Tomlin, who is an African-American coach. And it was because of this thoroughness in, in how my father engaged the process that he really found someone who was more diverse, um, but wasn't sort of part of, of the official process of the rule, but in, in conducting this overall broader approach to interviewing and broadening the candidate pool, he found someone who may not look like him, but, but really carries the values and, and, and beliefs and approaches that the Roonies have. And, and I think my father would say that Mike Tomlin and Kia, you know, that, that conducting a process this way really achieve that. So that's sort of how I respond to the question about the Rooney rule. Yeah, no, I think that's a fantastic description. What stands out to me, Jim, is that it really is something that goes beyond just the hiring process. It's about creating a greater understanding and appreciation for the environment and the culture that ultimately can lead to a diverse hiring process. But it's so much more than that, especially when you mentioned how your dad went to the commissioner and asked him to feature assistant coaches who are minorities, you know, in their promotion pieces and providing that background and extra bit of information about them. It's those things that I think the Rooney rule probably stands for in a bigger picture. Am I right? Absolutely. And I I think you're speaking to, to another component of it that I didn't touch on, but that was, you know, I think when you create environments where, where you are more deliberative, you take more time. I know people don't like time in business, but but when you take more time, you're more thorough, you, you create a, a sense of belonging, you create that sense of safety that, that everyone wants within their work environment. And, and, and you know, all studies show that the, the most effective teams have that sense of psychological safety amongst them. And I think conducting a process that is, that is very deliberate and, and very thorough speaks to creating that sense of belonging, I think, in a meaningful way. Another quote that stood out in the book was regarding how sports is a microcosm of life, regarding fierce competition and intellectual challenges. And especially with regards to the Rooney Rule, it's also around the culture and having that deliberative approach and being thorough. Yes, we're seeing it manifest in, in the Steelers and how the Steelers manages their team and their process. But I think for businesses, there's a larger message there that's really important. I want to segue now to talk about you and your business. You're an entrepreneur and you run a firm that works with organizations to enhance culture and build strong teams. So it sort of fits right in, right? This is perfect background for you to do this. What problems do you typically see organizations facing when they reach out to you? I'm guessing they reach out to you because there's something they want to work on. They need a solution to something. How do you help them? Well, let me jump back first a little bit and talk about how I got here because it's, it's a little bit of an interesting story and relates to my father. And then I'd certainly like to answer that question if I may. So the Steelers had been successful. We have, we've had people ask my father to come speak about the Rooney Rule and about, about other contributions he's made in business. And, and, you know, as he was ambassador and also as he sort of started to age, I sort of became the, the emissary to go give those talks. And, you know, it was, it was interesting to me how interested 
people were in the, the sort of approach that my father had. People were interested in this approach my father had when I'd be out speaking. And so, you know, I, I began to have conversations with him about, look, I think this is something we should do um, as a business, but also a service that, that people really feel that you've done things well. And so I remember having this conversation with him while he was ambassador to Ireland. I said, when you come back, you know, don't waste your time with the Steelers. They're, my brother's doing a good job there. You know, why don't you come and, and work with me? And he said, I'm not going to do that, but, but I want you to, 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 you know, if this is really what you want to do, you know, I'll work with you on it. And we actually found a program at Georgetown University that I went to. And um, it's a certificate program, but, but I went and, and learned organizational behavior. I, w- I work with my wife, who is a professional coach. So really looking at, you know, the, the ideas of, of, you know, the elements of culture, mindset, behavior, attitude, um, you know, all of these things that, 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 that have such a big influence on culture and, and how my father approached that and how the stories that, that I knew of his life could be effective are tools that, that I've tried to bring to bear. Um, in terms of who needs these things, absolutely. You know, it is usually a situation that, that folks who, who ask for culture help, um, you know, have some sort of problem and, and, and um, with the way folks are engaging in the system. And, you know, there, there's a whole host of things that, that I can do in terms of walking through an evaluation with a team, which is usually the first step, some type of individual interviews, and then some type of group interviews, and then, and then maybe a process to, to review that. Um, you know, but ultimately, where, where I get to is, is I'm putting a mirror up to the culture and, or, to, or to the organization and, and, and how, they, you know, how they approach themselves. They have to make the determination whether they really want to make substantial changes. And then in terms of the change mechanisms, you know, we, we've worked with design thinking, we've worked with the influencer model. I mean, there's a lot of great change tools out there and, and we deploy what we think are best within the this, this certain situation. But to me, that upfront piece, I think we do really well and, and helping folks gain an understanding of themselves is, is critical in terms of gathering that information. But you know, the inflection point is the organization and the leadership of the organization, when that mirror is held up to them, you know, are they really willing to look at their gaps and their deficits? And are they really willing to make the changes and that those changes are going to require time and effort um, and, and a contribution, sometimes resources? Um, and, and, and you know, most people don't like change and most people don't like to change themselves. So um, it's, it's, it's something I really enjoy doing. Um, I think it's something that we, we, we provide a really substantial contribution, um, but it's also something that, that at the end of the day, um, you know, some people really want to make those changes and are able to, to, to have an effect. And some people aren't willing to, to really own their own role in, in, you know, what is, what is not going well when we look at, at, you know, functioning culture, you know, all those different terms. I like what you said there, Jim. Uh, most people don't like change. Change is hard. And especially when you're talking about teams, it's exponentially difficult. Starting with one person, you can sort of deal with it. But when you're dealing with teams and then a whole organization, so driving culture change, making an assessment, figuring out and being deliberative and you providing tools, that's great. I like that a lot. What advice do you think your father would have for family businesses that are grooming the next generation of leaders? 
Absolutely. He, you know, he would say, be authentic. Um, you know, know your skill sets, know your strengths, know your weaknesses. If you are, you know, if you have that alpha quality and, and the way you get people to follow you is, is through motivation, inspiration, um, you know, sort of a, a powerful presence that, that is vocal, then do that. But if you don't, you know, don't try to, to be that. Now, you're going to have to communicate. So, so all leaders, I think, have to work on improving their communication skills, but don't try to be a type of communicator that you're not. Um, be authentic. And if it, if it is much more that people are going to be willing to follow you by, you know, um, a, a quiet, um, you know, showing up every day at 7 a.m. And, and, you know, getting things done when they're asked to be done, you know, much more of a, of a sort of quiet uh, leadership style, just do that well, be authentic, you know, be thorough in that. Um, but, but whatever it is that, that you know, leadership, uh, the most important part, part of leadership from being around teams all my life, I always say is followership. And, and people, you know, can smell if something isn't real. And, and um, you know, if, if they don't think there's authenticity or sincerity, they're not going to follow for long. So, so I think, I know that's what my father would say, and, and I think that that is, is probably the most important piece of, of you know, evaluating and then, and then preparing your successor. So another question for you is regarding what we're all experiencing today with the COVID-19 pandemic. It's a time of incredible uncertainty for many companies, for small businesses, large companies alike. And one of the quotes in the book from your father was, sometimes it has to get worse before it gets better. And maybe we can all relate to that quote now more than ever. What advice do you have for businesses at this time? Well, I, you know, I think that, you know, I, I do look back to my father at this time. And, and you know, one of the, the many things that he did well, and I, I you know, is, he dealt with ambiguity very, very well, and he was comfortable tolerating situations that, um, you know, you, there were a lot of unknowns. And, and certainly he was always trying to seek as many knowns as possible and deal with conditions as they were. But he also understood, you know, if you look at um, the work he did in Ireland, where he, he, you know, he was heavily involved, he was not only ambassador of Ireland, but he, he created a, a, a charitable effort that was really became. Um, something akin to the United Way, and they 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 are are regularly. It's called the American Ireland Fund, and they're they're regularly pointed to as as one of the most significant um, contributors to the, the the peace process, and and the fact that that people would have the tools and resources that that actually helped enhance the the peace process when the when the large peace agreement came about in 1998. My father had started this back in the mid 70s, and um, you know, I wanted to give a little bit of background there, but to understand the circumstances, you know, he was in war zones and I remember him and, and us being in Derry, a town in Northern Ireland, you know, it looked like a World War II movie set. And, um, you know, there were, there were piles of rubble on the ground that used to be buildings. There were, there were very few hotels or very few restaurants. I mean, I mean, people just lived in this, this, this war zone type of mentality, yet, um, he always found those John Hume, who is considered the the Martin Luther King of the peace process in Ireland, um, lived in Derry, and and my father always found and built relationships with those folks that were 
peddling hope, if you will, and dealing in hope. Um, but there was also a reality. They, they, there was a sobriety that, you know, this took 20 years. And, and I'm not saying that, that COVID-19 is going to take 20 years to, to overcome. But the idea that you're, you're going to have to deal with ambiguity, that you're not going to know all of the knowns, but that you try to keep your, your moral compass, your, your compass, um, you know, set. You, you, you may have to make hard critical decisions, but don't be making them out of fear and anxiety. Um, you know, make whatever hard decisions you have to and be sober and realistic, but understand that, um, you know, the goal is, is something positive is, is, is ultimately that, that there will be hope. There will be an opportunity. Um, there will be something, um, down the road that, that you can get to and, and to be striving for that amongst the ambiguity. That's, that's what I saw my father do in many situations. I think Ireland is the most poignant and most obvious. Um, but I think it's a good approach for right now that, that, you know, we have to deal with the knowns, but we also have to, to tolerate the unknown and, and to do that with, with decency and respect and, and patience with each other. Hope is a very powerful thing. And having that compass set and not changing your compass out of fear and anxiety, I think that's an important point that you made too. And just as a follow-up, I was curious, do you and your team have any techniques that you use at this time? Are you doing anything to help keep your folks grounded and yourself? Well, it's funny because so, so you know, there, there's the work we do on culture, but we also have um, a, a business that does, um, we do business case analysis, basically market research. And we do some work for a lot of um, folks that are dealing with, uh, are, are the frontline folks. So we're, we're working with a couple innovation systems in hospitals, and we're also doing some work for some Department of Homeland Security first responder organizations. And um, so folks are very, very busy right now amongst my team and, and, and trying to, to fill in and support and provide whatever, whatever you know, capability we, we can. Um, and it's actually taking away, and I'm, I'm trying to keep reminding all of us of, of one thing that we, we've done, and that is to really try to have mindfulness. And, and we actually start many meetings where we will, we will do what is basically a, a meditation and, and really get grounded, uh, really, you know, have a focus on, on ourself, our emotions, um, our thoughts, uh, our breathing, you know, whatever, whatever sort of the well-being place we can get to, to really become more and more centered so that we're able to listen to each other better. We're able to have more patience. We're able to be constructive um, rather than, than, you know, critical is good, but cynical is not. And, and um, to create an environment um, that, that, that really values that. And, and we, we, we try to start with, with a real mindful approach. So a bit of meditation in each meeting. You can do that over Zoom too, right? <laughs> I've done a few Zoom things. And, and Jill, who is, uh, you know, is part of our, our ad hoc team here, has, has been in those, uh, in those uh, mindful moments. And uh, so it's everyone that becomes part of our team for a while gets, gets uh, you know, some experience with that. And, and look, I think in the long run, it makes uh, a lot of our decision making. I don't know that it makes it better. I don't know that you can enhance it, but it, it, I think it brings more wisdom into it that ultimately gives better results. It also, I think, as a team, sort of makes the brings the human element forward and recognizes that, hey, we're all people and we all have feelings and we're all a little bit scared right now. Absolutely. And so that seems like a really important thing for you as the leader to 
not only condone it and say, hey, this is a good thing, but you're also part of it and leading it. So I think that's really special. It's interesting that you say that because I'm going to speak to a group of students tomorrow. I'm, I'm speaking to a couple um, business school classes, uh, sports industry classes um, over the next uh, six weeks. I think I think we have 10 or 12 scheduled. Um, we thought it was a way we could make a contribution. And, you know, I am absolutely planning on starting with, you know, uh, some of the references to mindfulness and and accepting the the reality that there are a lot of unknowns here and that that anxiety and and concern are, are not odd things to have I, I i think we all have to watch that we don't get um obsessed with them or overtaken by them but but to accept the reality of the situation uh, you know i think the opposite of the, I, I think if you don't accept that you're being a little delusional and that's going to run run a lot of problems for you yeah for sure so last question for you i like to ask all of my guests if they have a favorite quote about entrepreneurship, what's yours? So you know, I I, I know this is this is your favorite, uh, you, you know, something that you do, um, you know, and I've I've been trying to think of an of an entrepreneurial quote, and and you know, I kind of hate to do this, but I went to my father's thing because I think that all entrepreneurs have to face this, and you know, there are going to be times it's going to get worse before it gets better, and I think that to me means just gestation, that, that things take time and, and you're going to have conditions that are tough, but that doesn't mean that things aren't developing, things aren't going to get, uh, aren't getting better even while things are difficult and that, that attitudes, mindsets of your competitors, um, your customers, you know, all the things that you, you want to have happen may be happening at times when they're, they're, it's not directly in your control and that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not saying that everyone should sit around and wait when times are tough, but, but to expect that they won't be and that, and that when they do come that, they're, that everything about them is negative, I, I, don't think that's, that's a, I don't think that's the best approach. Yeah, having patience and having that ability to be grounded, it kind of fits all together. Jim, thanks so much for joining me today. This was a lot of fun to talk to you. I really appreciate you being on Succession Stories. Lori, thank you. It's great to be with you. And for our listeners, if you want to learn more about Jim Rooney's book and Dan Rooney's story, From the Super Bowl to the Rooney Rule, please visit adifferentwaytowin.com. Thanks for listening to the Succession Stories podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you'll consider sharing it with a friend. If you think it's worth five stars, please go to iTunes and rate it so that others can find it as well. I would love to hear from you. Tell me what insights inspired you today. And if you have suggestions for content, please let me know. You can reach me at Lori Barkman on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, or send an email to successionstoriespodcast at gmail.com.